Welcome back to Down Home Fear. My name is Hunter Keegan, and today we'll be revisiting the final episode from the original DHF Casey Anthony miniseries that aired in 2017. This installment was a lot shorter than the other two in the series. Essentially, it provides a general overview of the trial and the aftermath. Before we go further, I have another correction on name pronunciations. While doing more new research for the Case for Casey Anthony miniseries, it came to my attention that Detective Melick, you probably remember him from part one, he was one of the first detectives to question Casey after Kaylee's disappearance. Anyway, Melick actually pronounces his name Melish. Just wanted to go on the record and correct that. Anyhow, this is an abridged version of the third installment in the original DHF Casey Anthony miniseries. We'll pick up right before the trial in 2011 and go from there. In this episode, I use the word overzealous for about the 1,000th time when describing the prosecution's approach to this case. We'll talk some more about how they tried to convict Casey even without Kaylee's cause of death being determined, as well as other factors. So let's get started. Now we'll go through the events of the trial, and then after that we'll spend some time talking about what happened to a few of these individuals after Casey eventually walked free. A quick heads up before we get started, there are a couple of mentions of child molestation in this part of the series, so if that is upsetting to you, you may want to skip it, but there's nothing graphic, there's just a couple of um, brief mentions of it. I think you'll really be interested to see just how weak the state's case against Casey Anthony was during this trial and, you know, why it's actually, in a really strange way, not that shocking at all that she was able to get off and avoid doing serious time for those felony charges. So, here we go. Casey and Kaylee Anthony, Part 3. just start off by saying that the prosecution was way, way too overzealous with their approach to this trial. Remember that Casey was facing the death penalty for first-degree murder, but Kaylee's cause of death was never even definitively proven. As we discussed in part two of this series, because the prosecution didn't want to undercharge Casey, 
and also because of the Florida State speedy trial rule, Jeff Ashton and his colleagues took a gamble and decided to pursue first-degree murder against Casey Anthony, and unfortunately, it backfired. We ended part two in 2009, discussing George Anthony's suicide attempt and his ensuing attitude changes, his decision to no longer cooperate with law enforcement. Now, let's fast forward to the spring of 2011. On May 24th, Casey Anthony's trial begins. The presiding judge is Judge Belvin Perry Jr. The previous judge, Stan Strickland, had decided to step down after being accused by Jose Baez of having a conflict of interest in the trial. Casey is facing charges of first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter of a child, and four misdemeanor accounts of providing false information to police. The prosecution argues that Kaylee was intentionally suffocated with duct tape because the responsibilities of being a mother were interfering with Casey's carefree, hard-partying lifestyle. The defense, on the other hand, was claiming that Kaylee had accidentally drowned in the swimming pool in the Anthony family's backyard and that Casey's bizarre behavior, not reporting the crime, lying to police, etc., etc., was due to sexual abuse that had been inflicted upon her by George Anthony from an early age. Her actions, Baez claimed, were those of a woman who was suffering from acute PTSD and emotional trauma. George Anthony flatly denied that he had ever molested his daughter, and the claims that Casey had been sexually abused were actually contradicted by Casey herself during some of the early interviews she had with psychologists shortly after being arrested in 2008. Regardless, this is the story that Baez used to defend her. Remember that there was no murder weapon in this case. There was no video or photographic evidence of this murder. There wasn't any eyewitness testimony from a person who happened to see the crime taking place. The prosecution was relying solely on scientific evidence and expert testimony to convince the jury that Casey had murdered her own daughter. From June 3rd to June 8th, the issue of the smell of decomposition in the trunk of the Pontiac that Casey had been driving back in 2008 was examined. Multiple investigators and experts, including Arpad Voss, who you may remember from the earlier installments in this series, testified that there was an odor of human decomposition in the trunk. Two of the cadaver dog handlers indicated that their dogs also got hits for the smell of decomposition on the trunk of the vehicle and also in the backyard of the Anthony's home. Remember the chloroform levels that Arpod Voss had stated were thousands of times higher than they should have been in the trunk? We discussed it back in part one of this series. Well, it actually appears that there was a bit of a lack of consensus on Dr. Voss's conclusion. Many experts from the FBI were called in to testify, 
and some of them said that the chloroform levels were actually quite low. Some of them said that they could have actually been the result of household cleaners, not necessarily a decomposing body or a chloroform agent that had been used to incapacitate someone. One expert even said that it was pointless to try testing for chloroform levels in the trunk of the vehicle that Casey had been driving because the chemical is so volatile that it's almost impossible to get accurate readings on it in such a environmental condition. On June 9th, the subject of the chloroform came up again, but this time it had to do with the computer searches that were found on the Anthony family computer, where someone in March of 2008 had apparently been making a high number of searches for how to make chloroform. A software analyst said that the high number of chloroform searches could actually have been due to automatic page reloading on the website. It didn't necessarily mean that someone was making dozens and dozens of searches about how to make chloroform. This continued to build reasonable doubt in the jury's mind that Casey had really been behind the murder of her daughter. Furthermore, on June 10th, the medical examiner who had ruled Kaylee's death a homicide said that she had done so because of the delay in the reporting of Kaylee's disappearance. She said she could not be sure how Kaylee actually died, which is obviously a huge problem for the prosecution because they're trying to say that Kaylee was intentionally murdered, and now the medical examiner is saying that it's impossible to tell how she lost her life. From June 11th through June 25th, other pieces of circumstantial evidence are scrutinized, including hair samples, insect larvae, and soil samples that were all found in the trunk of the Pontiac. But none of it is enough to convince the jury that a murder had been committed. The defense even went on to make some outrageous claims about the duct tape that had been found near Kaylee's skull, saying that it had been staged by the the medical examiner in order to bolster the prosecution's case against Casey Anthony. On June 30th, Casey tells the judge that she doesn't want to testify, and a woman named Crystal Holloway is called to the stand by the defense. She claims that she has had an affair with George Anthony and states that he told her that Kaylee's death was a, quote, accident that snowballed out of control. George denies that the affair ever occurred, and he also says that he never said anything about Kaylee's death being an accident to Crystal Holloway. Closing arguments took place on July 3rd through July 4th. The prosecution said that Kaylee was intentionally suffocated with duct tape because she was interfering with Casey's lifestyle, her party girl lifestyle, as it was frequently referred to in the media. The defense said that there was no proof how Kaylee died and that there is substantial reasonable doubt that Casey killed Kaylee. They also reiterated their story that Kaylee had drowned, Casey had panicked, 
and George Anthony had made the death look like a murder and then disposed of the body in the swampy area behind their home. On July 5th, 2011, after 10 hours of deliberation, the jury acquitted Casey Anthony of all felony charges. So that would be the first-degree murder, the aggravated manslaughter, and the aggravated child abuse charge. All of those were dropped. But she was convicted on all four misdemeanor charges of lying to law enforcement officers. On July 7th, Casey Anthony is sentenced to one year in county jail and $1,000 in fines for each of the four misdemeanor charges for lying to law enforcement. But she has credit for time served and good behavior during that time that she was in jail from 2008 through 2011. And because of this, her release date is set for July 17th, 2011, just 10 days later. Members of the public are largely infuriated by this decision. However, legal professionals seemed to not have been that surprised. A man named O.H. Eaton Jr., who was a retired judge from the 18th Judicial Circuit in Florida, said in an interview that I watched that the judges in the state of Florida were not surprised at all, but the public was outraged with the verdict. Jurors were threatened by angry protesters, some of them even receiving death threats for failing to convict Casey Anthony of murder. In fact, Judge Perry had to rule that the jurors' identities would be kept confidential until at least October of 2011 in order to ensure their safety. Now, how did the prosecution lose? Well, there were a few different reasons. One of them was that the jury felt there was reasonable doubt regarding Casey's involvement in Kaylee's death. There were so many pieces of conflicting information that it was difficult for them to decide what really occurred on that afternoon in June of 2008. Another reason is that Jose Baez crafted a very fantastical but compelling story involving Casey being molested by George from an early age and actually painted her in a bit of a sympathetic light. He said that her bizarre behavior was the result of post-traumatic stress and years of abuse, and he painted a picture that George disposed of the body himself, making George the villain and Casey another victim. There are many holes in this version of events. For example, if George disposed of the body himself on the day of Kaylee's death, why was there the smell of decomposition in Casey's Pontiac? Either way, there wasn't really any hard evidence to confirm or deny this version of events, so it continued to cast more reasonable doubt in the eyes of the jury regarding Casey's involvement in Kaylee's death. Additionally, there was no definitive cause of death in this case. Only circumstantial evidence such as duct tape that was found near the body, odor that was in the vehicle that Casey had been driving. There was no murder weapon, there was no definitive cause of death, and this put another huge hole in the prosecution's case against Casey. 
Which brings me to my final point, which is that the prosecution had overcharged this case. They did not have enough evidence for first-degree murder. Casey may have been involved with covering up Kaylee's death, and she was certainly guilty of lying to law enforcement, but there was no proof that she had intentionally killed her own daughter. We can speculate all that we want, but there is simply not enough evidence that was presented at this trial to convict her of purposely killing Kaylee. So, on July 17th, just a little after midnight, 12.10 a.m., Casey Anthony is released from jail with $537.68 in cash to her name. The public was furious to see her walk free. This had become a nationwide story, and the media had largely and inaccurately painted it as an open and shut case. In August of 2011, Casey is ordered to return to Orlando, Florida and serve one year of probation because of an unrelated check fraud charge that she pled guilty to in 2010. Her address and her probation reporting location are both kept confidential because of the amount of death threats that she had received since her acquittal. There is a Florida law that allowed the state to hold Casey responsible for some of the costs related to her false statements to the police. The state initially ordered that she pay $517,000. But in September of 2011, Judge Perry ruled that she had to pay only $97,000 of that amount just the costs up to when the police technically stopped investigating the case as a missing child case, which would have been in that early fall, late summer of 2008. A week later, on September 23, 2011, Judge Perry ruled that Casey had to pay an additional $119,000, though. So that makes the total that she owed the state $217,000. $217,000. A number that may initially sound like quite a bit, but when thought of within the context of the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of man hours and the countless amounts of private and public resources that were put into searching for Kaylee and trying to find this mystery person who had abducted her, and to investigate all of the different lies and just complete fabrications of stories that Casey had thrown together in order to throw off the police and continue securing her freedom, it really doesn't seem like a whole lot to me.
so. What happened to these characters since we knew them in the summer of 2008 through the early summer, late spring of 2011? Let's start with Jose Baez. Jose Baez is still practicing law out of Orlando, Florida. His recent clients include Aaron Hernandez, who you may recognize if you're from uh, the United States. Hernandez is a former American football player for the New England Patriots who was convicted of first-degree murder and is currently serving life in prison. Jeff Ashton, in 2012, successfully ran for the seat as state attorney in the Ninth Judicial Circuit Court in Florida. He lost his bid for re-election in 2016 and has recently hinted that he may write another book. George Anthony and Cindy Anthony, it was difficult to find a whole lot about these two In September of 2011, they did appear on the Dr. Phil show. For those of you who are outside of the U.S., uh, Dr. Phil is kind of like, it's sort of a self-help show hosted by this really hacky psychologist guy, but it's like very exploitative in nature and has been criticized over the years for taking advantage of people who are uneducated or who are mentally ill. Anyhow, George and Cindy Anthony were on it, and during the interview in September 2011, George said that he would never reconcile with Casey after her allegations that he had molested her and that he was involved in Kaylee's disappearance. Cindy and George did have their house foreclosed on in late 2013, so I uh, I guess they've been having some financial difficulties. But what about... Casey. Well, this is a kind of interesting one. She's still an object of minor fascination in the tabloids. Like every once in a while, you'll see, oh, she was sighted at XYZ location buying groceries or whatever. She's now 30 years old and is still rumored to be living in Southern Florida. I read a People magazine article where I guess they were interviewing a friend of hers or something, and the friend said that Casey seems quite bored with her life and that she doesn't really make a lot of friends for obvious reasons, (laughs) which I thought was a pretty funny quote. But uh, in 2013, Casey Anthony did declare bankruptcy, and she's said to still owe hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees and fines and other debts. Several people close to Casey, uh, this is also from that same People magazine article, several people close to Casey said that she no longer regularly speaks with George, Cindy, or her brother, Lee. She has been known to stage photos um, and try selling them to tabloids, so I guess she'll like get a friend to take a paparazzi-esque photo of her walking down the street and then tries to sell it off to make some quick cash, which, you know, gotta do what you gotta do, I guess. 
Apparently, though, uh, she's living pretty comfortably these days. She gets financial help from friends and some members of her legal team, which I don't really know exactly what that means or why they would be helping her out with financial stuff like that, but that's uh, that's what I read in this People magazine article, so it's got to be true. Interestingly, she's also been making forays into photography. About a year ago, she registered a business in Florida called Case Photography LLC, and interestingly as well, there seems to be a Twitter account that was active up until about five or six months ago where Whoever manages the account, and also, full disclosure here, I'm pretty sure it's her, has been posting updates about the business and also getting in fights with people about her uh, her lack of conviction. And it's, it's very interesting. It's very uh, weird. You can check it out. It's at Case Photo LLC on Twitter. And I know you guys are all, like, super awesome people and everything, but if you do decide to go on there and check it out, please do not spam the accounts. Please do not post, like, weird messages or anything, because I'm not positive that it's her, and even if it is her, I definitely don't want to have anyone going out on witch hunts or anything like that. So, um, yeah, anyway, check it out. It's interesting. Just please be respectful. And um, apart from that, that's actually the most recent thing I could find about her. She hasn't changed her name, as far as I can tell. She looks very much the same way that she did uh, when she was going through the trial. She hasn't, you know, drastically changed her appearance or anything. She seems to be trying to stay out of the spotlight for the most part. Um, but, you know, who knows, maybe that'll change. I'm personally kind of surprised that she hasn't tried to cash in on her experience more because, I mean, if she wrote a book, it would sell countless copies. There's so many amateur detectives and true crime fanatics who would love to hear her firsthand account of what transpired, uh, during that, you know, three to four year period. But at the end of the day, you know, that's, that's obviously up to her. We'll see if it ever happens. I know that basically across the board, people who are close to the case and close to, uh, Casey Anthony herself say that, uh, that they don't think she'll ever come out and say what happened. So only time will tell. As of 2022, Case Photo LLC is no longer active on Twitter, so you don't have to worry about trying to go on there and 
finding Casey that way. This episode provided a general overview of the trial and why the charges didn't stick. In the upcoming The Case for Casey Anthony series, we'll go much more in-depth into the events of the trial and the arguments the defense team raised to help Casey walk free. We'll also provide some new theories about what may have really happened to Kaylee, additional updates on the Anthony family since the events of the trial, and the wild influence of the media on Casey's public image. Regarding what we covered in the original miniseries, do you think the bombshell claim about Casey being sexually abused by George Anthony is true? Was George really involved in the mysterious death of Kaylee at all? Additionally, do you think that the forensic evidence provided by the prosecution, for example, Dr. Arpad Voss's chloroform analysis, should have been enough to convict Casey? How about the fact that the medical examiner even admitted that it was impossible to definitively tell how Kaylee had lost her life? Was there enough reasonable doubt for Casey to walk free? My name is Hunter Keegan. Connect with me on Twitter for show updates at HHKeegan. Thank you for listening, and I hope you are looking forward to the brand new The Case for Casey Anthony content. Stay tuned.